Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel again. Uh, great to be here. A blessing to be able to gather together in fellowship and worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray you are all well uh, and that you are all looking forward to all the Lord has for us today. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we last left off in Luke chapter 16. And so if you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and pull them out, open up uh, to chapter 16 of the Gospel of Luke. You know, thus far in our study of chapter 16, we've seen an emphasis upon proper stewardship and planning for the future, uh, the deceitfulness of earthly riches and the love the Pharisees had for them, and the fact that God has provided one and only one way to enter into heaven, which is through faith in His one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Though there were many wanting to press into the kingdom of God to force their way in through their own means, Jesus affirms the truth of the gospel and how God's word is clear and it will not change. God's plan for salvation and redemption has been the same throughout the scriptures and God's word will not fail. Today we're going to cover a very interesting portion of scripture. Hey, a portion of scripture that details for us an account of a certain rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. The text is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Now, some of your Bibles may have certain headings above different portions of scriptures. Most modern Bible translations do. However, we have to understand and realize that these headings are not part of the inspired and errant word of God. They are added in the uh, publisher by uh, publishers. The editors uh, add these um, headings in uh, as a way for people to easily find certain texts, right? It's kind of even the numbers, you know, chapters and numbers. That's why those are in there as well, so that we can easily refer to portions of Scripture uh, to make it even easier. They, you know, head, put a bunch of headings all over the place. This is where this portion's at. This is where this portion's at. Now, for those of you who have these headings, you may find that your Bible entitles the text that we're going to cover as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Other Bibles, okay, however, simply say the rich man and Lazarus. And therein lies one of the things of interest when it comes to this text that we're going to be studying. Some believe that what Jesus teaches here in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, is a parable. It is an earthly, fictitious story used to illustrate certain heavenly truths. Others are of the mindset that what Jesus teaches here is, in fact, not a parable, but it is a real-life account of something that actually took place before Jesus' death upon the cross, his resurrection, and his subsequent ascension into heaven. In this account, Jesus gives some details about the rich man and Lazarus, details about their life, uh, and details about their death. And he gives some details about their life after death. And it is the details about their life after death that Jesus gives us the most information on. And the details are very interesting. And we can make a number of observations and draw a number of conclusions based upon what Jesus has to say in this portion of Scripture. But 
those who are of the persuasion that this is a parable would caution us from doing so, stating that we shouldn't draw too many inferences or points about doctrinal positions based solely on the details found in a parable, that parables are meant to convey an overarching truth and the details shouldn't be given too much attention. However, If this account is indeed an actual account of a real-life situation, then the details would warrant greater consideration, and we should pay close attention to them and all the points that Jesus makes about life after death. So, depending on whether this is a parable or not, could change the way you approach this text and how we interpret it, how we apply it to our own lives. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know with certainty whether or not this is meant to be a parable or the retelling of a real-life event. I cannot say with 100% certainty either way. I do not feel comfortable staying up here and say, absolutely, this is a real-life event, or absolutely, this is a parable, okay? I, I, I won't do that, okay? But what I can say is this, that I believe that this is 100% the inspired inerrant word of God, that Jesus said these words and that they were recorded for us by Luke that we may grow by them, okay? Second Timothy chapter 3 states this, all scripture, okay, all scripture, okay, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? When Paul writes all scripture, I believe that includes the parables, okay, that are recorded for us within the scriptures. And so whether this is a parable or not, it doesn't really change the fact that these are the inspired words of Christ and that they were given for our profit, that we may grow in our understanding of God, that we may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we're going to dive in and we're going to make observations. We're going to look at some of the details and and draw some conclusions and some points and, and see what God has to say about life after death. So we'll go ahead and read our text this morning as we look to understand God's word, apply it to our lives. The title of our study this morning is going to be Life Beyond the Grave. Okay, Life Beyond the Grave. And our text again is going to be Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his holy word? I'm going to read through the entirety of our text uh, from my Bible. I want to encourage you to do your best to follow along in your own. Okay. Luke writes the following in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. 
But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear hear Moses and the prophets, neither Will they persuade, be persuaded, though one rise from the dead? A very interesting portion of Scripture, and we need God to help us uh, through it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, um, we do just come before you and, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just lead us and guide us into and through this truth, Lord, that we would um, understand it. Um, that we would make sense of it, um, Lord, that we would apply it uh, to our lives. Lord, we don't want to be just hearers of your word. We want to be doers of your word. And so, uh, Lord, allow us to glean from this portion of Scripture what you would have for us to, to walk away with, Lord. Trusting, Lord, that while this is a uh, maybe a difficult portion of Scripture, Lord, it is where you have us this day. And we trust that Uh, your spirit's desiring to speak to us today through this word. And so give us ears to hear all that your spirit desires to say. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The afterlife uh, and the details of what it will be like is something that most people have an opinion upon. Uh, what people base those opinions on, usually based upon their own religious beliefs and or their own opinion of what they hope it is like. Um, I was doing some research um, as part of this study, and I, I found a Pew Research Center report that was recently conducted um, this last September that was aimed at trying to decipher how the general U.S. population deals with death and suffering and their views upon what happens after death? The, the, they surveyed, uh, according to the fine print, 6,485 U.S. adults. And the survey was weighted to be representative of the U.S. adult population by gender, race, ethnicity, partisan affiliation, education, religious affiliation, and other minor categories. And the results, I thought, were quite interesting. Okay. Nearly three-fourths Okay, of the U.S. adult population, 73% believes in a literal heaven. And the interesting thing that I th- thought about that is that the number decreases by more than 10% when it comes to their belief in hell. Only 62% confessed a belief in hell. Evidently, people like the idea of heaven and eternal bliss and happiness, but they aren't so keen on the idea of hell and eternal punishment and damnation. Uh, Some other results that stood out to me was the fact that one in six Americans do not believe in any form of the afterlife. I thought, wow, that's a lot. Um, And another aspect of the report, uh, when referring to those who did believe in heaven, 
I was really shocked at this one. But those who did believe in heaven, 53% of them, over half, okay, believe that people who do not believe in God can still go to heaven. Uh, well, well, I, I think it's safe to say that the majority of Americans don't have an ab- accurate biblical view of the afterlife and heaven and hell. Okay? In our text this morning, Jesus gives us a very descriptive account of two very different people who lived two very different lives and who ended up in two very different places. And as we go through our text, we're going to note a number of contrasts pertaining to these two individuals. And then we're going to consider some of the details Jesus gives about life beyond the grave. And we're going to look to some other portions of Scripture to try to come up with a biblically accurate view of the afterlife and and what happens to us when we breathe our last breath here on earth and breathe our first breath in eternity. That's a question a lot of people ponder. What happens to us when we die? We're going to look to try and maybe answer that this morning. We're going to start by looking at the contrast in life that these two individuals lived in verses 19 through 21. I'll read them again. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. We'll stop right there. Here in our opening verses, we see a very different contrast, a couple different contrasts about the lives these two lived. The first contrast that I'd like to bring up involves their names, okay, what they were known for or known as. Verse 19 opens up telling us there was a certain rich man. This rich man's not given a name in our account. There is some historical tradition out there that says this man's name was Divus, which is Latin for rich, but that's only based upon tradition and it has no biblical support to it whatsoever. The man goes unnamed and is simply known for his riches. He was known as a rich man. However, the other individual in our account does go named. His name is Lazarus. And the fact that this man is given a name is one of the main reasons that some believe this to be a real-life account and not a parable. Because none of the other parables that you read of in the Gospels actually use real names for the people involved in the stories. If this is a parable... It would be very unique in that fact. Okay? Jesus never gave an actual name to the individuals in any other parable recorded throughout all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you won't find a Gospel that gives a proper name like this one does. Okay? It's always you know, a certain man or a certain landowner or a sower or you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a man or like a merchant or like a certain king. Never does he give proper names. But here Jesus says this man's name was Lazarus. Now, not to be confused with Jesus' friend and the brother of Mary and Martha, whom Jesus will later raise from the dead. This is a different Lazarus. Now, the name Lazarus is actually a form of the Hebrew name Eleazar. 
And the name Eleazar means helped of God or whom God helps. And I believe this brings up an interesting contrast when we consider the names and what they are known for. The rich man was known only by his riches. Everything that he was was wrapped up in his wealth, in his money. He placed all his hope, all his confidence, all his faith in his riches. Now, on the other hand, Lazarus, based upon his namesake, looked to the Lord for help. He trusted in God to be his helper. His hope, his confidence, his faith was in God. And I believe this is an important detail for us to consider. Whom or what do we place our hope, our confidence, and our faith in? Do we place it in our wealth, in our riches, in mammon, or do we place it in the Lord? You see, whenever we place our hope and our faith in money, we are headed for destruction and ruin and great disappointment. Listen to what Solomon has to say on the matter in Proverbs chapter 11. He states, He who trusts in his riches will fall. As a matter of fact, you will fall. Proverbs 11.28 Money, you guys, is fleeting. One day it is here, the next day it's gone. Okay. Again, Solomon states in Proverbs 23, he says, Do not overwork to be rich, because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly, fly away like an eagle toward heaven. I like actually how the New Living Translation puts Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. I have it up on the screen for you. It says, Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. You guys, do not put your hope, your faith, your confidence in something that can be here one day and gone the next. Okay? Don't put your hope in riches and in wealth. Okay? You will only be disappointed. Instead, put your hope, your faith, and your trust, your confidence in the Lord who is never changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is our rock, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He writes, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Like Lazarus, we need to place our hope, our faith, our confidence in the Lord and not in riches. Well, not only is there a contrast in their names, but we also see an obvious contrast in their lifestyle. Okay, verse 19 tells us that the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. This purple was a very expensive dye that was found in certain types of shellfish along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Only those of extreme wealth and high rank wore such clothing. The fine linen speaks of a very costly, delicate, soft linen made from Egyptian flax. Again, something that only the rich and prominent people of society could afford to even own, let alone wear. And not only did he own this kind of apparel, but the end of verse 19 gives us the indication that he wore these kinds of clothes on a daily basis. And that he was wearing the nicest of clothes every single day. And not only did he, uh, we're told that he 
also fared sumptuously, which basically means he lived a life of extravagance, a life of great luxury. Okay, this was the kind of guy who would have starred on that show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And um, before you say anything and you're like, what is he talking about? It's an old show. Okay, if you, if you lived in the 80s, you probably know. All right, thank you. Perry, Perry knows. Okay, Robin Leach, right? Life's never mind. Okay. You guys are so young. <laughs> um, he was living high on the hog, okay? He didn't have a care or a concern in the world. He lived every day to the fullness of his own pleasure. He's living for self, didn't care a thing about anyone else. Now, in contrast, we are told about Lazarus, who was poor. He had to beg for any sort of sustenance just outside the dwelling of this rich man placed at the gate. Okay, uh, at, before his gate, basically, we get the sense that this man was perhaps crippled. He was unable to walk himself. For the end of verse 20 tells us that he had to be laid at the gate of the rich man, implying that he was carried and he was dropped off by others. We're told that his body was full of sores. Now, the word sores is the Greek word for ulcers. His body was covered uh, with ulcers breaks in his skin where his tissue was disintegrating. And the picture is really quite disturbing of a man who's covered with open sores that are festering, oozing out like a pus just on this regular basis, so much so that the dogs who were the wild street dogs would come along and and lick his sores. And he was evidently unable to do anything about it. We get the sense of the idea that he couldn't even like shoo them away or get them away from him. And so you've got this guy, he's laid there at the gate, can't move, can't get around on his own, open sores, dogs. It's, it's a bad, bad, bad state. Okay? According to verse 21, the beggar Lazarus was seemingly starving as well. He longed to be able to eat just the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. He craved that which was usually left for the domesticated house dogs on the floor, the crumbs that would fall from the master's table. Now this word desiring is the same word that was used to describe the longing of the prodigal son that we read about just a few weeks ago, who would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. It's the same sense of the idea, just this great desperation, this longing for just anything to put into his stomach. And so we see such a great contrast here in the lives that they live. The rich man lived for himself in abundance and luxury without a care or concern for anyone else, while Lazarus lived as a crippled beggar covered with ulcers that longed just for the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. Now before we move on, I believe it is important that we remind ourselves whom Jesus is speaking to here. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He began addressing them back in verse 14. If you look up just a few verses uh, earlier in our uh, chapter 16, you see that he was addressing the Pharisees. And here in verses 19 through 31, he continues speaking to them about the rich man and Lazarus. And I believe this is important to note because the Pharisees believed that health and wealth were signs of God's approval. It's basically the prosperity gospel that states and affirms the idea that God wants us 
all to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if someone was healthy and wealthy, well, they interpreted that with God's blessings and his favor and his approval upon your life. They would look at this rich man and they would come to the conclusion that he must be living right before God because look at him. God's blessed him. He's got health. He's got wealth. He's doing good. Oh, that's a sure sign that his, he's living right for the Lord, right? And the converse would be true as well, okay, when it came to the sick and the poor. They saw that as a sign of God's displeasure with a person, that you basically must not be living your life right because God wasn't blessing you with health and wealth. Therefore, Lazarus, this poor beggar covered with sores, with no money whatsoever, would be seen as one receiving his just rewards, that this was God's way of punishing him for some great sin or offense that he had committed. That was the mindset of the Pharisees. Let me just state, very plainly, this, of course, is not true whatsoever, okay? God does not want us to put our hope and trust in riches or in our health. He wants us to depend completely upon Him. And that means sometimes He may allow us to go through seasons of difficulty. He may allow us to go through times of stretching. He may allow sickness to come. He may take away things in our life. He may strip us down to nothing. That He may get us to stop depending upon those things and putting our hope in them. That we may start looking to Him for all of our needs. Sometimes God will allow us to hit rock bottom in order for us to finally look up and realize that He is what we needed all along. Do not be led into the false belief that God wants us all to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and that if we aren't, that it means we are outside of God's will or that we are displeasing to the Lord. You guys, we must consider Jesus Christ Himself. By human standards, He was poor. Okay, He was homeless. He speaks about how he had no place of his own to lay his head. He was afflicted. He was tormented, persecuted, persecuted excuse me, by the religious leaders. He didn't fit the description of one blessed by God in the eyes of the Pharisees. They'd look at him and say, you certainly are not you know, of the Lord. And yet we know there was no one else of whom the Father audibly declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not just once did God say this, but twice. There it is, baptism in Matthew chapter 3, but again in Matthew chapter 17, upon the Mount of Transfiguration, where God stated, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And so God was well pleased with Jesus, even though He was poor, even though He was persecuted. And so we see that the Pharisees' idea of health and wealth being evidence of God's blessings and His approval simply does not align with what we know from the rest of Scripture. Church family, I want to encourage you, do not be led astray into believing the prosperity gospel that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and if you're not, you're in sin and and you're doing something really bad, okay? That just does not line up with what the Scriptures teach. Let's continue on looking at the contrast. Okay, we've looked at the contrast in their life, but let's look at the contrast in their death in verses 22 and 23. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. 
Not only did these two live very contrasting lives, their deaths were a contrast of one another as well. We're told that Lazarus died first, and then afterwards, so too the rich man. The rich man, we are told, was buried. The Greek word used here for buried, uh, it speaks of the performance of the funeral rites. And so he was given a proper funeral and and a burial service. No doubt there were many in the community who came out. Okay, there would be uh, professional mourners and uh, all that goes with a proper funeral procession. Uh, the body would be carefully wrapped in linens and anointed with spices and perfumes and would be carried by other prominent high-ranking people to a, a tomb where his body would be laid. In contrast, we read nothing of the sort taking place for Lazarus. There's no mention of his burial, no mention of others who mourned him, nor of those who cared for his body. There in Jerusalem was actually a ravine just south, southwest of the Temple Mount, and it was known as the Hinnom Valley. And in this uh, place, in the past, it was used for all sorts of idolatrous acts and human sacrifices. People would sacrifice their children uh, there to Molech and other false gods. Okay? Uh, it was a, a number of different sinful kings who did not walk in the ways of their father David who did this and participated in these acts. Because of, because of its horrible history, the Jews eventually turned this valley into a dump site where the trash fires would be perpetually burning rubbish tossed out from the city. Historically, we know that filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned there in these piles of rubbish, along with executed criminals. They, their bodies would be tossed over into this valley where there was this perpetual burning fire. Okay? And it's actually... Um, the Valley of Hinnom is uh, where we get the Greek word Gehenna from. Uh, it's a reference to the Hebrew of the Valley of Hinnom. It was meant to be a per- picture of hell, okay? uh, of the perpetual flames and fire and the smoke that was always constantly rising from this trash heap rubble where dead bodies and carcasses and trash and just the waste of the city was constantly being burned. Now, While it seems there was no human care or concern for the body of Lazarus, we are told that the angels came and carried what we must presume to be Lazarus's spirit or soul to a a place called Abraham's bosom. The rich man, however, was found to be in a place of torments that's referred to as simply Hades. Now, some of your translations may read hell instead of Hades. And it would seem that perhaps that is not the best translation for the word Hades. When referring to hell, we often think of that as the place of eternal damnation and separation from God, the place of final judgment. And I do not believe that is what's being described here. Hades and hell seem to be different places. Gehenna is hell. It's the word that's used for hell in the Greek. Hades is a different word altogether. Now, Hades is the Old Testament equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol or Sheol. And so Hades and Sheol, they're the same, just different 
languages, okay, Greek and Hebrew, but talking about the same place. Okay? And they are used to refer to a place or an abode of the dead that included both the righteous and the unrighteous within it. Based upon what we read here, it appears to me that there are separate divisions or parts of Hades, one part for the righteous another part for the unrighteous. The unrighteous are left in torment, but the righteous are welcomed into Abraham's bosom, into his embrace, if you will. And this makes sense as Abraham is known as the father of faith. It would make sense for the father of faith to welcome and receive those who live their life by faith and in the hope of God's promises. Now, while these places are distinctly different, they seem to be within the same general vicinity of one another, close enough at least for people from one side to see those on the other side, as stated in verse 23, where the rich man's able to see Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, we will get more into some of the details of Abraham's bosom and Hades as we continue, but before we do that, the point I want to make here as we contrast the deaths of the rich man and Lazarus is that they both experienced death. Both died. (laughs) Death is said to be the great equalizer. It comes to each and every one of us regardless of our wealth, our fame, our influence, or our lack thereof. Death comes to the rich, and it comes to the poor. It comes to the famous, and it comes to the unknown. It reaches man, woman, child, and elderly, None have the ability in and of themselves to escape it. Now, people don't like to think about death. They think it morbid or disturbing, and I can understand why. But the truth of the matter is that it will eventually find us all, should the Lord tarry. And knowing that death comes to us all, I think it's important that we prepare for it and what comes after it. We don't know the day the Lord will call us home, but we do know that all have a limited amount of time here on earth before our time is up and we are called into eternity. We need to make sure that we are prepared for it, that we are ready to enter into eternity. Now, whether you want to think about it or not doesn't change the fact that eternity awaits each and every one of us. Let's move on to our final section where we note a contrast in life after death. Okay, we've noticed the contrast in their life, the contrast in their death. Now we'll look at the contrast in their life after death. We'll chop this up into smaller portions, just making observations and points along the way. So we'll begin by looking at what we read in verse 24. It says, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So the rich man, he is in torments, in Hades. The Greek word for torments used in verse 23, the verse right before this, literally speaks of a touchstone, a black silicious stone used to test the purity of gold, silver, and other metals. Metaphorically, this word is used to speak of an instrument of torture by which one is forced to divulge the truth. Uh, It's a trial by torture, basically. In the New Testament, it's used three times, and it's translated as torment each time. It refers to great pain and anguish, torture, 
and torment. Here in verse 24, the rich man describes himself as being tormented in a flame, a a bright burning fire. The Greek word here is actually different from the word in verse 23. This word speaks of being in terribly pained and distressed to be in great agony. And so they were very similar words, but two distinct Greek words were used here. I want you guys to note with me something that I think is important. The rich man calls out to Abraham and he calls him Father Abraham, right? This rich man was Jewish, okay? But the fact that he was Jewish did not help him one bit in avoiding this place of torment. Many of the Jews of Jesus' day believed that their place in the kingdom of God was secure simply because they were related to Abraham and the patriarchs. John the Baptist confronted the Pharisees and the other religious leaders when they came out to his baptism. He called them a brood of vipers, and he questioned them, asking them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, right? For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, being a descendant of Abraham does not get you into heaven. Just like being the descendant of a Christian doesn't get you into heaven. You see, it doesn't matter if your grandma or grandpa was a believer. It doesn't matter if your mom and dad are believers. It doesn't matter if your sister or your brother or any other uh, relative or relationship that you may have and they're a believer. It does not matter. Getting into heaven is based upon an individual decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Who you are related to, it has absolutely no eternal impact upon your destination. Do not put your hope in, you know, well, my grandma or my grandpa, you know, they used to serve the Lord and they did this and that and the other and, you know, I'm good to go, right? No, that doesn't matter. The rich man cried out for mercy, for some sort of temporary relief, asking for even just a a drop of water to cool his tongue. And it would appear from this description and others throughout the Bible that in Hades and in hell, the unrighteous are fully aware of their surroundings and they are fully conscious to the torment they experience. Unlike some who think that hell is going to be some sort of perpetual New Year's Eve party with all of their friends, Hades and hell are anything but a party. Hades and hell is a place of perpetual, agonizing pain and torture where people will beg for mercy and find none. It is a horrible place that was created for the devil and his fallen angels according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It is a place that God desires that none should enter into. Second Peter testifies to this fact where Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants us all to repent. God wants us all to choose life. 
to take his offer of forgiveness through placing our faith in his son and the work that he did upon the cross of Calvary. But God will not force us to repent. He will not force us to choose him. You know, some ask the question, how can a God of love send people to hell? to a place of perpetual, agonizing pain and torture? Those who ask this sort of question are mistaken in their understanding. God doesn't send anyone to hell. In fact, God has done as much as He could possibly do to prevent this from happening, except for take away our free will to choose. He has provided a way to escape hell and enter into heaven by grace, Through faith, he sent his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sins that we may enjoy eternity with him in heaven. And all he asks for in return is that we repent of our sins and trust in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Those who end up in hell are going there by their own free will. They are choosing to go to hell rather than receive God's free gift of salvation that he has provided for all who would repent and believe. Church family, this is not a feel-good message, okay? This is one of these portions of scripture that as a Calvary Chapel pastor, I'm like, man, why do we have to teach verse by verse through the Bible? Because this is not fun, okay? Listen, the pain... An agony of hell is real. But so is the gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. And we have to choose which one we want. Do we want heaven or do we want hell? And wherever we end up, it will be by our free will choice. God's not going to force us into hell or into heaven. Whatever we decide is where we will end up. Let's continue on. Read verse 25 as we make yet another observation about Hades. Verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he's comforted, and you are tormented. From this verse, I think it would appear, from this verse at least, that those in Hades will in fact remember their life and they will remember the choices that they made. I think that that one, I think that one of the most haunting memories that those in Hades will have will be all the opportunities God tried to get them to repent and believe in the Lord that they squandered. In Hades, I, I do not believe, you know, your thoughts, your memories will be filled with all the fun, crazy parties that you lived in and, and just the licentious living for the world and all the good times that you had. Okay? Those thoughts will torment you as you realize the foolishness of your decisions and how incredibly short-sighted you were to live for the temporary in light of eternity. We see here that Lazarus was being comforted while in Abraham's bosom. So Abraham's bosom seems to be a place of comfort. What else do we know about it? Well, not a whole lot, to be honest with you. 
Okay, it seems to be part of Hades, a part where the righteous dead are comforted and consoled. Others suggest that when Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, that Jesus was referring to Abraham's bosom as paradise. This is actually the only place in the Bible where Abraham's bosom is specifically mentioned. But there are some other interesting portions of Scripture that may shed a little bit more light on the matter. In Matthew chapter 12, verse, um, around verse 40, okay, Jesus spoke to the scribes, the Pharisees, that demanded a sign, stating, And an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so after Jesus' death, He spent three days and three nights in this place called to, referred to as the heart of the earth. Many people believe this to be a reference to Jesus entering into Hades and that it was a fulfillment of David's words in Psalm chapter 16. There David, the psalmist, wrote, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the place of the dead, right? Hades in the Greek. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In the book of Acts, speaking of David's words in Psalm 16, Peter writes, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31. Paul writes of Jesus and how he ascended on high and he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He states parenthetically in verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 3, now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so evidently Jesus descended down into Hades when he died upon the cross, but he did not remain there. He ascended and he led captivity captive. What does that mean? Well, uh, many believe that when Jesus went into Hades, that he went to Abraham's bosom or paradise, making that connection to what he spoke to the criminal when he died upon the cross. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, where did Jesus go after he died? He went to Hades, okay, Uh, in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 16, right? And so paradise would be perhaps another word for Abraham's bosom, Um, And so some people believe that, um, and that when he ascended and led captivity captive, that it's referring to him taking with him the spirits of those who were being comforted in Abraham's bosom. He took them with him into heaven, and Abraham's bosom now sits unoccupied. Um, That Abraham's bosom was basically like a holding cell For the Old Testament saints who are waiting upon Jesus' completed work of redemption upon the cross where he paid for the sins and completed the requirement for the entrance into heaven. Now, whether or not that is exactly how it happened 
is debatable. And I will tell you that Bible scholars disagree, and there's uh, different points that are made. Okay? Based upon my understanding of Scripture, how I've looked at it, my studies, my limited knowledge, okay, I think that th- this is what happened, how it happened. Okay? Um, but I'm not so certain as to say that it couldn't have happened in any other way. Okay? Um, I do believe, though, that for those who die in Christ after his death and resurrection, that they are immediately taken into the presence of the Lord. Okay? Paul writes, he says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. While we are in these earthly tents, we are not in the presence of the Lord in heaven. But he says, you know, for we walk by faith, not by sight. But he does say this, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This idea is that when we are done with these earthly bodies and we are no longer, our souls, our spirits are no longer uh, here, that we will be in the presence of the Lord, that we will enter into his presence. There won't be, you know, a holding cell or a waiting cell. Okay, we can be confident that when we breathe our last breath on earth, Okay, and our spirits are removed from these earthly bodies, okay, and we've placed our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, that we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. I believe that very strongly. Okay. Let's continue making another observation. Take a look at verse 26. It says, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, uh, nor can those from there pass to us. We'll stop there. When the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to him to comfort him with a drop of water, Abraham replied, this was not possible. Hey, there, that there was a great gulf fixed so that people could not pass from one side to the other. And this is very important for us to note, you guys. Once you die and you enter into the eternal, there is no switching places. Okay? You cannot go from one place to the other. Once you die, your fate is sealed. It is fixed. Okay? The word fixed in the Greek, it speaks of something that is set fast. It is established permanently. There are no further chances. And this shuts down any thought of of a purgatory, going any thought of you know being able to pray for loved ones who have passed from this life into eternity that you know we can pray them into heaven. No, that that's just not true. Nothing can be done to alter your eternal state after you've died. It's set. It's final. Sealed. Let's go ahead. We'll tackle the rest of this portion, verses 27 through 31. He says, Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him into my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Understanding that there was no hope for him, the rich man finally started thinking of others. 
And he desired that Lazarus be sent back from the dead to testify to his five brothers that they not end up in the same place that he was. You know, not to make too light of it, but can you imagine Lazarus, you know, hearing this, right? I mean, he's finally being comforted and and the rich man's like, hey, send Lazarus back. And he's like, I don't want to go back. You know, life was horrible for him. He had a a horrible, horrible, difficult life, right? Why would he ever want to go back? He's being comforted in in Abraham's bosom, right? Uh, Quite pleased, I'm sure, to be where he was. Abraham rejected the rich man's proposal, basically stating that his brothers had all the information they needed to avoid entering into this place through Moses and the prophets, and that they needed to heed their words. But the rich man declared, no, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man knew that his brothers would not heed the message of Moses and the prophets. How did he know this? Because they had access to the message all their life and they hadn't heeded it yet. Okay, They were Jewish. They were brought up in the scriptures. They knew what Moses and the prophets taught and yet they didn't change their life. There was no hope of them all of a sudden just heeding it for some reason. Oh, you know, maybe we should start listening to that, you know, uh, what Moses said. No. The rich man believed that if someone came to them from the dead, that it would cause them to repent. But the truth of the matter is that miracles, signs, and wonders, they do not produce faith. They do not produce genuine repentance. And this is evidenced over and over again throughout the Gospels. You see, the multitudes, they saw countless miracles by Jesus, but that didn't produce faith. It only produced an insatiable appetite for more miracles, signs, and wonders. The truth of the matter is that Jesus had already raised someone from the dead. Earlier in our study of Luke's Gospel, we read of the account of the widow's son being raised from the dead. A widow was weeping and mourning the loss of her one and only son. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came and he touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who is dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. And word spread really quickly about Jesus doing this incredible miracle. Yet the rich man and his brothers didn't respond to it. Later on, Jesus will once again raise another from the dead, his good friend Lazarus. And instead of repenting and believing in Jesus, the religious leaders plotted to put Lazarus to death along with Jesus. Right? Send someone back from the dead. They'll believe. They'll repent. What did they do when Lazarus came back from the dead? Let's kill him and Jesus. And of course, Jesus himself would rise from the dead, and yet still the religious leaders would not believe. Miracles, signs, and wonders do not produce faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 teaches us where faith comes from. There Paul writes, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It is the word of God penetrating the heart of man that brings about faith. And that's why Abraham declared to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It is the word of God that brings faith, not miracles, not signs, not wonders, 
People try to claim that they would believe in God if they just saw a miracle, but that simply is not true. They need to respond to God's word. They need to respond to his gospel message. That's how people come to faith. It's the spirit of God speaking the word of God into the heart of man that causes people to have faith. I'd like to note one more thing about this situation that stands out to me, and then we'll finish up here. Okay? It wasn't until the rich man was stuck in Hades and eternal torment that he understood the need for repentance and the need to get the message out to all those whom he loved. But the time for repentance and the time to get the message out is now, on this side of eternity. Understanding the need and the importance of this after death, it's kind of pointless. We need to understand the need and the importance of repentance and preaching the gospel now while we still have an opportunity to impact lives before people's fates are sealed. Let's be good stewards of the gospel message and proclaim it and live it out now while we still have opportunities to impact the lives of those around us for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, this is a a challenging portion of Scripture, Lord. It's not a fun message, Lord, but we know it's true. We know it's accurate, Lord. We know Hades is in hell. These are real places, Lord, places you don't want any of us to go to. And so, Lord, I just pray right now, Lord, if there is anybody here that has not received your free gift of salvation, Lord, that today would be the day that they repent and they place their hope and faith in you, Lord, that they'd stop putting their hope and faith in anything else other than you. And Lord, that they would know with certainty, with great confidence, that the moment they breathe their last here on earth, they will breathe their first in your presence, Lord. Lord, I pray there are none here None would have to taste of that place, Lord. A horrible, horrible place, Lord, that you don't want us in, any of us to go to. And so, Lord, I pray, just work in our hearts. Give us that longing for eternity that outweighs any type of temporary pleasure that we might be living for now. And Lord, I pray for those that have placed their hope and their faith in you, Lord, that we would seize the opportunities we have now to proclaim your message, to live out your message to the world around us, to those, especially those in our lives whom we love, we hold dear, we cherish, Lord, that they would know the truth of heaven and hell, that there is life after death, Lord, and we will spend eternity in either one of two places. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into your presence and you would use us to bring as many as possible into your presence. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.